Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Horizon Theatre Company opened its 38th season recently with the critically acclaimed Every Brilliant Thing. It's a unique interactive show about how a child's list of all the wonderful things in the world transforms a family's life. Later this hour, we'll hear how Horizon is telling the story of the joyful list and why they're utilizing three separate actors to play the lead role of the storyteller. First, a local writer who found her joy by pivoting from attorney to author. Having been named a most anticipated read by the LA Times and Boston Globe, Atlanta author Wanda M. Morris's debut novel, All Her Little Secrets, does not disappoint. The fast-paced legal thriller utilizes the writer's own background as a corporate attorney to shape the story as we follow her main character, Elise Littlejohn, through a mystery laced with suspense and intrigue. Wanda M. Morris joins me now via Zoom. Hi, Wanda. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me. You know, I feel like I have to start with your personal history as a lawyer. How much of Wanda is in this book? <laughs> um, there might be a smidge of me in there. <laughs> I, uh, I once read a long time ago, someone said that there's a little bit of the author in every book they write. And that might be true. You know, of course, I am a lawyer. I've worked inside corporations. But I do think that Elise Littlejohn is, gosh, um, far and away, a different sort of woman. And I love her for that. (laughs) She is a very complex character. Your main Mm -hmm. character, Elise, grew up in a very rural area of East Georgia. Is that correct? Correct. Is the town fictional? It is a fictional town. It is kind of inspired by a small town in Georgia, but I gave it a fictional name because I I certainly didn't want anyone to make any misinterpretations about the town. So understandable, although it did send me down a Google hole looking for that town. (laughs) So she does grow up very poor with, unfortunately, a mother who is an alcoholic, but she creates an amazing life for herself and she becomes a corporate attorney. And that is where we meet your main character when she is doing very well in her career, but she's also keeping a lot of secrets. 
and secrets are at the crux of what your book is about. And I was wondering why you decided to explore secrets and what makes them fascinating to you. You know, I think there is something about a secret that feels so intimate and personal. And when I was writing this book, I knew that I wanted a character who would be put in this really, really tough position where she had these ethical canons that she had to abide by as a lawyer, but she still had this moral dilemma of how do I protect the people that I love, specifically a brother who she has kept secret from even the people who are closest to her because he has had some trouble on the other side of the law. And so she is walking this very dangerously thin line of, if I reveal these corporate secrets, then I put my brother in danger. If I protect my brother, then I'd have to violate my ethical oath as a lawyer. So she is always walking this fine line of what do I do next? But at the end of the day, because the story, (laughs) I tell people, Despite the body count in this book, it really is a story about family. (laughs) And so at the end of the day, she has to decide between this family of people within this corporation or this family that she is born into. She has to make some tough calls. And of course, you know, every time she makes a call, it's the wrong one. It goes horribly wrong. And she has to get up. She has to start and fight all over again. But that was part of, you know, the grit of her character. But I think lawyers, I think I said it like in the opening sentences of the first chapter is, you know, we have all these $10 terms as lawyers that we use to protect information and, you know, guard our clients. And what does that mean in the context of protecting the people that you love? And that's what I wanted to explore in this book. Yeah, well done. There's a lot of depth to this story, too. Aside from all the terrific twists, you paint an honest picture of some tough topics, including the challenges that face Black women in corporate America, right? Yeah, I think that that is a piece of my lived experience that did show up in the book. I have worked in predominantly white spaces and what that means for being the only one or the other in the room. Uh, It's definitely a different dynamic. Of course, this book is fictional. And so the things that you read in this book, you know, certainly they kind of came out of my imagination. But what I tried to do in exploring that experience was to show that oftentimes women, and particularly Black women, when they are in these spaces, have to do double time. They not only have to be, you know, successful and on their game, but, you know, they also have to be wary. They have to be the adult in the room, so to speak. Mm. And all those things just add yet another complex layer on just trying to do your job and be successful as a woman in corporate America, particularly in organizations where there is just glaring 
absences of Black and Brown people. It is just more work to be done. Certainly, there is much more work to be done. For sure. And that is the environment that you wrote Elise into the company that she works for. She is one of the only people of color in the room at most times. And not only that, but one of the background elements throughout the book is there is consistently people protesting outside of this corporate law office. Yeah, I think that that is yet another dynamic in this whole interplay of being the only one. She works for an organization where there are no Blacks in the executive suite, and the few Black and brown people who do work for the company are you know, in roles like security. And yet she still goes into this job every day because, you know, she has bills to pay. But it wears on her. One of the opening scenes, she's driving into the garage of her building and there are protests going on because a group of Blacks have filed a discrimination charge against the company for lack of hiring and promotional opportunities. And, you know, she kind of has this moment as she's driving into the garage and she looks at these protesters and she wonders, you know, gosh, what would they think, you know, if they knew that I am in here and she questions her own self, like, you know, gosh, I take a paycheck from these people and yet they don't hire other people that look like me. She has a best friend in the book who also kind of brings her to that vortex and says, you know, gosh, why do you work for a company where you're not valued and they don't value the things that you value? And those are tough questions for her. I think those are tough questions for anybody when you work in a space where you don't see representation or you work for an organization that is less than inviting because you do walk that fine line of, I still have to pay bills, I have to feed my family. And so what do you do? And for Elise, she takes a promotional opportunity, even though she has misgivings, she has gut feelings that it might not be the right opportunity for, she takes it anyway because she thinks, well, maybe I can make a difference. I can fix and it from isn't the that inside. What we, right, right. I can fix it from the inside. And isn't that what we all want to do? If there's a problem, you know, maybe my being here and my being in the room will help. I can help them bring people of color in. And, you know, I can show that, you know, we deserve to be in places like this. Of course, it all goes horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It does indeed. But that's what makes it such a fun thriller to read. Talking about the executive suite, there is a line in there that I had to laugh out loud. You paint a picture of a HR exec. And at one point, this character, her name is Willow, she says, I'm in HR. I don't see race. I only see people. And it just <laughs> literally made me start laughing because I know we all want to be that way, but that is not reality. Exactly. Exactly. That is so not reality. And, you know, it's interesting with all the characters, I tried to 
bring something into each of them that, you know, was realistic that we've all kind of seen. And with her character, even Willow is kind of on this journey because she too, even though she's a white female, she's trying to navigate this very toxic environment as well. And so she kind of spews, you know, lines like that in the hopes that, you know, this comes from the good HR manager right. playbook. <laughs> so it will make me a good HR manager. Right. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, and for Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Atlanta author Wanda M. Morris. We're discussing her new legal thriller, All Her Little Secrets. You know, this book is also very distinctly Atlanta. You have incorporated every area of town into it and so many things that if you are in Atlanta, and you even mentioned Snowmageddon at one point, which I was just (laughs) like, yes, this is my town. But you do. You travel through Buckhead, Carice, Atlanta, Midtown, Johns Creek, the West End. You talk about rowing on the Chattahoochee, news outlets by name. What made you decide to almost make Atlanta a backdrop character in this book? Yeah, you get it. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted Atlanta to be a character. I find this city just fascinating. I am originally from Ohio, but I've lived here for decades now. I met my husband, who's a native uh, of Atlanta, and, you know, we've raised our kids here. So I, this is like home to me. But I wanted the city to be a character as well, because it is a city that is full of dichotomies. I mean, at one point in America's history, the city was the epicenter of the military operations for the Confederacy. Mm. It is also the cradle of the civil rights movement. And today, as we speak, you can still see clearly evidence of both periods standing here in the city. You know, you've got John Lewis Parkway, you know, just down the road from Stone Mountain, where Confederate soldiers are etched in the side of a mountain. So the city is much like Elise Littlejohn herself. It is a beautiful, wonderful, complicated place with a complicated past. And I wanted to bring that out in the book. I do mention different parts of the city because the city is so vast and it is so very different across, you know, everything from West End to Johns Creek. And that I think is what makes this city so vibrant and so good and so bad because we have so many different people and so many different cultures. And so, yeah, I wanted to make sure that the city stood out as well as all the other characters in the book. I think Atlantans will especially appreciate the care that you put into our city's part of the story. As mentioned before, it's your debut novel. So will you share what your path was like moving from attorney to author? I often tell people my overnight success only took 13 years. (laughs) (laughs) I actually started the first draft of this book, like I said, a little over 13 years ago. And I actually put it away, Kim, because I convinced myself that nobody is going to want to read a book about, you know, a middle-aged Black woman who works and deals with really awful people. 
and I put the book away for seven years. And then I had some health challenges and I got through them. And when I did, I realized I was just stretched thin. I was trying to be all things to everybody. I was working this really stressful job. I had three kids. And I said, you know what? I am going to start doing things that bring me joy. And writing has always done that ever since I was a young girl. And so I pulled that manuscript back out and it was awful. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> terrible, it was terrible. But that was okay because I convinced myself this time I can make something bad better. And I went back to work on it. I knew that I had a great story. I just didn't know how to translate that to paper. So I started taking online courses. Uh, When I could, I would attend conferences so that I could join a community of writers. I learned so much. I took a portion of the original manuscript and applied to the Yale Writers Workshop. And wonder of wonders, I got in. Hmm. And I learned so, so much. And I continued to do that. And I started to look for an agent. And that was a whole nother process. I call that my years of rejection. Yeah, um, <laughs> I could imagine that is tedious it and, and was hard just, emotionally. Yeah, it was it was rejected roundly. And, you know, the book was not ready mm. because given the topics that are covered in the book, I don't think people, you know, were attuned. And then we had 2020 happen. <sighs> And you had the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. You had the murder of George Floyd. And it was kind of a wake-up call for a lot of people. And they said, wow, is this really happening? And so I think it was then that people were more receptive to the issues that are covered in the book. And so I secured an agent. We went out on submission and 12 days later, we were in an auction for the book. And what an um, amazing so success story. It, it really, it is the stuff that dreams are made of. It, it really is. But it, it was a long and hard road. But I, I never lost sight of these wonderful characters. I always loved Vera and Elise and Sam and, and all these characters. And, and I just had to believe in myself the way I believed in them. Atlanta author Wanda M. Morris. Wanda will be part of the National Writers Series Black History Month virtual panel on the 24th of February. She'll be joined by esteemed writers Honoré Fanon Jeffers and Vanessa Riley. More information about that event, as well as information about Wanda M. Morris's debut novel, All Her Little Secrets, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll find joy in daily delights with Horizon Theater's production of Every Brilliant Thing. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Ice cream, water balloon fights, and staying up past your bedtime. Those are just a few of life's treasures when you're a kid. Horizon Theater's production of Every Brilliant Thing explores a child's growing list of what makes life worth living when their mother goes into the hospital for depression. The show opened Horizon's 38th season and runs through the 27th of this month. Director Jeff Adler and actors O'Neill De La Penha and Megan Hayes recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom. Adler began their conversation with a bit of the show's history and why Horizon wanted to produce it. This play, Every Brilliant Thing, has been around for a while, maybe 10 years, and has been produced all over the world. It's a wonderful play that the audience can participate in, in a, in a nice way. The storyteller, the actor who plays the person who shares the story with the audience, enlists the audience to play along with the story in very simple, easy ways. But that draws all of us in to own the story. It's a wonderful piece and it's been acclaimed all over the world. We were very excited to produce this because we we love the intimate quality of the piece. And I understand you even had some practical considerations for a one-person show. Well, while the play is written for one person, the playwright has suggested that the person who is telling the story could and should be of any gender, age, uh, ethnicity. And so we have cast three actors to play the role and trade in performance of the role. So we have a variety of actors that tell the story on different nights. You note for audiences that this play does address topics of depression and suicide. How do you, how did the playwrights balance such serious topics with light and humorous moments? I can speak to that a little bit. Please, O'Neill. I would say just the same way that life is oftentimes not all sadness all at once or all happiness or joy all at once. It's oftentimes a combination of different emotions that happen one right on top of the other or even at the same time it's very true to life in that sense of one minute you can be feeling on top of the world because you've just met someone new and everything feels different and fuzzy and tingly inside but at the same time you can be thinking about how these same feelings came up in a different scenario and how it went down a different road and make you feel sad or question the validity of the joy you're feeling now. I think the playwright does a wonderful job of 
going in and out of highs and lows, just as we do in everyday life. Hmm. If I may, may I piggyback as well on what O'Neill said? It delves so much in the, what you were saying, O'Neill, the convergence of life being happy and sad simultaneously. Like when you listen to a piece of music that evokes both emotions and so much of the play is about returning to the childlike wonder of the beautiful things and the brilliant things in the world that are simplistic, like ice cream and staying up past your Mm -hmm. bedtime. I understand you have a scene for us from the play. Would you perform it now? Uh, Yes, Lois. This is uh, an excerpt at the point in the play where the storyteller who has used the list throughout life is at the point of falling in love. And what we'll do with this, I'll have Megan and O'Neill each do half of the excerpt so you can hear what it's like for each of those very different actors playing that role. Oh, that's great. Go ahead, fire when ready. The next morning, I took the list and I ran to the library and Sam and I kissed for the very first time. From that moment on, we spent every second together. I wrote new list entries every day as a gift to Sam. 2,389 badgers. 2,390 people who can't sing but either don't know or don't care. Pages and pages of it. 4,997 gifts that you actually want and didn't ask for. 4,998 falling asleep as soon as you get on the plane, waking up when you land and feeling like a time traveler. Everywhere I looked, everything I thought about, 9,993, dreams of flying, 9,994, friendly cats, 9,995, falling in love, 9,996, sex, 9,997, being cooked for, 9,998, watching someone watching your favorite film, 9,999, staying up all night talking, 10,000, waking up late with someone you love, right, all right, I want everyone in the room to put your fist in the air. I'm going to fist bump the entire room. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and will you do that in the theater? Very exhaustingly, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and with respect to COVID, we do fist bump, not high five. And the audience is spread out, but it's a much smaller than our usual audience size. So it's a great way to have the intimacy, but not get too close. Yeah. Actors wearing gloves might be a bit distracting. You notice (laughs) on the list, every item of brilliant thing has its own number during the show. I hope I'm not giving too much away to say that audience participants are given some of the numbers with the thing to read out. So at times, the teller does not call out. Someone in the audience calls out roller coasters or whatever is the next thing on that list with the number that they have. This is improvisatory. I mean, it's participatory, but I think it's putting you as actors in the role of improviser, isn't it? It absolutely does, in a very simple, fun way for the audience. Megan and O'Neill, would you each talk about your approach to the character similarities and differences this piece resonated with me so completely i think i feel so much of myself in this character 
I grew, I grew up with a family where I had a parent that struggled with mental health issues. And I myself have had dealt with some mental health issues, depression, anxiety for a large part of my adult life. And what resonated so much for me is that we, we often don't, there's not a lot, a lot of forums, safe forums to talk about these things. And usually we kind of, or I've kind of always, you know, I'm Southern, we don't talk about things anyway. So like we bottle things up and don't speak of them. And what I love about this place so much is that it's just, it's talked about in a very disarming and and funny at times way that really I'm hoping will resonate and connect me as the storyteller with the audience. Similar to that, when I first read the piece, it spoke to me in, in the way that I love to tell stories of just being in a room with people communing over a shared experience. And the script serves as more of a guide than like a hardcore manual you have to stick to. The storyteller takes the main points of the story and tells them in their way. So in that sense, each one of us doing the role, it becomes very unique and the show becomes very distinct as to who we are. And I love being able to interact with the audience in the room and live in that spontaneity of whatever energy or responses they're giving to me I just have to take it and go with it and we tell the story together and that stood out to me so much reading the piece of just having that camaraderie that I wanted to share with everyone especially in these dark times we're living in. Mm. Jeff why does this show feel especially appropriate to open Horizons 38th season? Well, for one thing, it's one of the most affirmative plays that I've read in a long time. And that's not an easy thing to find necessarily nowadays. But also, it does push us past the isolation and provide hope and joy. And so it's a perfect play to start back with. And it's got a small cast, so it's safer. (laughs) Yeah, and you've taken special care in casting three different actors, not only to enrich the experience with three different perspectives, but also to keep actors, crew, and audience safer. We are, yes, uh, we are testing every day coming into rehearsal, and that's a key, but it's much more doable with a small cast. We have three actors. Sometimes they are all in rehearsal, which they love because they do not have an audience. (laughs) They are their own audience, but that keeps it plausible to keep it safe. Indeed. This question is for all of you. What are three things on each of your lists that make life worth living? Ooh, number one, I'd have to say I love musicals. I love all kinds of music, but I really, really love musicals because I love the stories behind the songs um, and the stories that they tell. So musicals would definitely be on my list. I would have to say Pad Thai. I love chicken Pad Thai. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have it on there. I, I, I could eat it every day. 
And I was thinking as we get older during the story, the list items become more specific. And it occurred to me, what is something very specific that I would want on my list? Not necessarily at the top, there's no particular order to it, but it occurred to me something that I didn't realize before is that I would have a list entry of being able to watch movies as a child and thinking nothing of them, but rewatching those same movies as an adult and realizing I probably shouldn't have been allowed to watch that movie as a child <laughs> because of whatever the rating was on it or whatever the content was. But just as a child, I was allowed a lot more freedoms than I probably should have had. And how awesome that was for all my parents. And I, and I thank them because I think I turned out okay. Thank you. Oh, uh, my three that I think of right off the top of my head, apple rhubarb pie and trees. I love trees so much that I give a birthday present to myself of the Botanical Garden membership every year. And of course, road trips with my family, my wife, Lisa, and daughter, Sophie. Lovely. Megan? O'Neill, that you've got me thinking about some really specifics. First, though, dance. Dancing always for me is just the best outlet. It's how I exercise. It's how I express things. It's how I can relieve stress, all those amazing things. I also, in no particular order, I love it when you wake up after a perfect night's sleep and you still have don't have anywhere you have to get up or be, and you can still just lie in bed for like an extra hour awake, but not getting out of bed yet. That is the best. <laughs> and then I also love seeing a play or a musical for the very first time and going into it, knowing absolutely nothing about it. And then as it the play and story unfolds, it becomes one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. I had that experience watching Company once, or I have had it a lot of times, but it's one of my favorite things. Director Jeff Adler and actors O'Neill De La Penha and Megan Hayes. Horizon Theater's adaptation of Every Brilliant Thing is on stage now through the end of the month. More information about the show can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a little bit of music history for Black History Month as we listen back to Lois's interview with pianist Lara Downs. Her album, New Day Begun, features music spanning more than a century written exclusively by Black American composers. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for being here. As Black History Month continues, let's learn about music written by Black composers and listen back to pianist Laura Downs' recent conversation with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Downs' album, New Day Begun, features music spanning more than a century, written exclusively by Black American composers. The record features Downs' own performances, accompanied by special guest musicians. When the pianist and host of NPR Music's Amplify with Laura Downs joined Lois last year via Zoom, she began by discussing the range of composers featured on New Day Begun. This album really tells a pretty broad American story 
Um, we have music by, you know, William Grant Still, for example, who was writing during the early part of the 20th century and who is credited as a pioneer in so many areas, as a composer, as a conductor, you know, as a, and just a, a trailblazer who opened doors for so many people. somebody who moved ahead of her time and sort of defied the odds and accomplished tremendous things. And then, as you say, there are composers who are working today and it's such a direct lineage at this point. And that's why I think it's really important for us to look at this as a tradition and not only as a collection, you know, of independent trailblazers, because that's what I see more and more as I go deeper into this process, just the connections and the, the heritage, you know, the, the lineage and legacy because piece of the tradition. There's room for everyone under that proverbial umbrella you talked about. And each of those composers you mentioned who were trained in the European classical tradition, like yourself, also couldn't help but be informed by music they grew up with, music heard in church, popular music. I was impressed with something I read in the background material for this recording that praises your work for presenting a musical heritage whose story is rarely told on its own terms. Would you elaborate? And how do you achieve that? I think it just comes down to who who has told the story, who has defined the history. This is this is a topic that's really big in my head right now. I've just been on the road for the first time this past week. And I was at the Brevard Festival in North Carolina and working with the students. And we were talking a lot about how we define this tradition, you know, what I, I guess we're calling it the concert tradition or the classical music tradition. How do we define it? And it's so clear that it's been so constrained. The definition has been so narrow. I think the moment that we just kind of loosen that, open that up, then we see the truth of what you just said about the, the constant evolution, because every person who's writing is part of a a chain and every person who's writing is influenced by their own time. So it's, I think we've just done such a disservice to keep this weird artificial lockdown, you know, this rooting this tradition in a specific time and place and not letting it continue and grow and change in our imagination. There's a gorgeous music video included with the recording. Would you please describe it? So the video that you're talking about accompanies my new version of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. 
And, you know, there's a song that is very much rooted in its time and place, you know, that was written in direct response to what was happening in the 60s with the civil rights movement. But revisiting it again this year in the midst of another, you know, huge social movement, social change, it really just felt so timely. And I think so connected to my own experience growing up as the child of parents who were involved in the civil rights movement and now as you know a grown person who is living the change of our own time so i worked with um, my friend keith henry brown who's a brilliant illustrator and he did an, an animated video he used a childhood photo of me as little who's you know standing alone and has this little sign that a change is going to come and then the whole the background fills up with all kinds of people, you know, all shapes, all colors, all sorts of people just coming together. Because I think that's the thing that we have witnessed that we've been part of this year is this really global, diverse coming together, collective coming together and hope and work for change. So yeah, I was so happy that we were able to do that. Um, music videos are hard. And when you find exactly the right story that you want to tell, it's really a pleasure to bring you know, so a visual element to the music. Oh, it's so effective. In oh. fact, A Change Is Gonna Come is one of the two singles you released in June in celebration of Juneteenth and Black Music Month. Laura, it must have been a challenge to narrow down your choices to just two. Why did you want to pair A Change Is Gonna Come with Letty B. Alston's variations on Lift Every Voice and Sing. I think that these two songs represent a lot of what I'm feeling about the unity, as you said, that's inherent in this music. You know, I really love the text of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is known as the Black National Anthem. And it's certainly a song about the Black experience, but the words are lift every voice, you know, and the song is about learning from the lessons of the past and leaning on the hope of the present. And I think that we can all feel ourselves in that. song took on new meaning for me when um, President Obama quoted from the song in his acceptance speech when he was first elected. And I heard it in a different way because what I heard was a change is going to come if we bring it. You know, not that we wait for change, but that each of us 
makes our own small change and those small changes come together. And that is the only change that's, you know, that is going to come. Um, and I'm feeling that across the board. I'm feeling that in our big, you know, social issues that we need to change that every day, we all just need to do something. And even in my own small little world, I mean, this is what I was saying to the students last week at Brevard, the things that we want to change in our art, in our industry, we change them. You know, we do the little things every day make the change you want to be. You did not include a vocal version of Lift Every Voice. Is this because you are a pianist and this is your voice? Yeah, well, you know me well enough to know that I steal songs all the time. Um, <laughs> I do think that I, I'm a, a singing sort of a pianist. And so when I have text in my head, I think it comes through somehow. And also sometimes when you do take the words away, you almost let the intention shine in a different way. I don't know, or maybe that's self-delusion, but I, I think that you can, when you imagine the words, you can infuse them with your own meaning. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. The subtitle of this recording is Laura Downs and Friends, and some extraordinary musicians join you on the recording. Impressive friends you've got there, Laura. Violinist Regina Carter, the bass baritone Devon Tynes, and the choral ensemble Tonality. The song I Dream a World is so beautiful and angelic sounding. They achieve this ethereal sound. What was it like working with tonality on this song based on poetry of Langston Hughes? I first worked with tonality several years ago in LA and was so thrilled to find like minds and like mission. You know, this is a group that is really intentional about presenting music with a message and about presenting in a way that's very inclusive of community. And they sing beautifully. And so it was important to me to bring them into this project. You know, we had to make this recording remotely and um, I'm really looking forward to being back on the ground and, and doing some things together in person. I mean, I think you're, you're right. It came out just, it, it's just exquisite. What, what better way to, you know, end this record than with those words from Langston Hughes. not the only piece inspired by poetry on the album. Violinist Regina Carter performs Caged Bird. Why is that poem enduring? You know, we're redefining freedom 
these days, I think. This idea that you can only sing when you're free. You can only express yourself when you have freedom. I think that's another concept to take really broadly and globally and just, you know, live that every day, both in, you know, the obvious large ways and also just in the small ways, just to think about the ways of freeing, freeing ourselves and others so that we can be our best selves and, you know, sing our best song. the violinist singing the words. <laughs> well, Regina is someone who has found her freedom through music. And, you know, I'm just so inspired by the way that she has no fear, you know, and has never allowed herself to be boxed in, to be caged in in any way. Just so fully expressive, you know, across genres, across styles, across traditions. So brave. Fantastic. Speaking of across genres for quite a while now in your performances, in discussions, now on NPR's Amplify series that you host, podcasts, you have addressed elitism in classical music, how it plagues musicians and limits concertgoers limits music lovers. How can these recordings and conversations surrounding your project help broaden the way people view classical music? I guess my hope is that in the moment that we have a different perception of where this music comes from and all the stories that it encompasses, then we have no choice <laughs> but to drop our assumptions and, you know, our protocols and these like sort of artificial constructs that have been built up around this music that keep, that keep people out, that keep people locked in. I mean, I think it's just kind of simple. If this music is understood to be diverse and to be inclusive, to, to include, like to include so many voices, then how can we keep looking at it in the same old way? I just remember myself growing up in this music, loving it so much, but seeing it as so narrow and kind of accepting that for the longest time. And now that I know the truth of it, I'm just, I'm sort of shocked at how, at how I was able to love it, even though I thought it was so restrictive and restricted. But you're expanding it. What are your hopes for up and coming black musicians and composers trying to make a mark in the traditional classical world? 
just for it not to be hard, just for it and just for no one to have to be the first at anything, you know, for composer not to mean one thing so that we don't have to say female composer. We don't have to say black composer. We just say composer. And, you know, that can mean anyone from anywhere. I want young artists of color to look at a world where they just, they see someone who's come before and that person who's come before doesn't look like they struggled. You know, I just want it to be every day and boring and, you know, not a cause for celebration that someone can have the life that they want to have and make the music that they want to make. Laura Downs, pianist and host of NPR Music's Amplify with Laura Downs from her August 2021 conversation with Lois. Her album, New Day Begun, Laura Downs and Friends, features music by 15 Black composers spanning more than a century, and it's performed by Laura and special guests. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Speech of Arrested Development shares his connection to Friday's 9th Annual Alzheimer Music Festival. Speech also happens to be hosting WABE's new monthly concert series, Sounds Like ATL, at City Winery on Tuesday, February 8th. Needless to say, we are very excited. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and I invite you to connect with us on social media. You can find us at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.